Hey everybody, welcome back to the Hunt Harvest Health Podcast. I'm going to get right into it. Uh, We have a cool podcast today with our friend Robbie Kroger from Blood Origins. Bloodorigins.com is where you can find Robbie. Uh, He's kind of all over the place. Uh, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. Go to his YouTube channel. Check out all the amazing videos he's doing, especially one that he recently put out on Friday which is called A Difficult Treasure. And it is a, a project that he got funded this year through donation dollars through his company to film um, what's going on in New Zealand right now with the tar. Um, the Department of Conservation there decided that it wants to, for 20 and, 2020 and 2021, uh, they want to basically go ahead with culling the tar as much as they can. Uh, this is without consultation from the hunting community. Um, this is without really talking to citizens about what this means. But Robbie tells us in this podcast uh, what it's about and kind of the dilemma that's going on in New Zealand, much like the dilemma that's maybe going on in the United States. There's a lot of uh, urban versus rural thought, um, urban versus rural jobs and and. Uh, what people there know as the tar and uh, a lot of them have never even seen one. Uh, They live in cities. They've never been to the mountains. They've never seen where the tar live. And so he wanted to get a perspective from non-hunters who had never been there. He wanted to take them into the backcountry where the tar do live. Um, Guided by a guy who I think is like the head of the Tar Foundation there in New Zealand. So it's a great video. It's only about nine minutes long. So it's definitely worth a watch and worth a share. Again, a difficult difficult treasure that's on his YouTube channel. Go check that out. He's also going to talk about a bunch of other product projects that he has had funded this year to help uh, struggling villages in Africa that have been affected by the COVID situation. Um, he's going to talk about, and we talk about at the end, a project called Raise Them Outdoors, which is a youth hunting and fishing outdoors camp where children and a parent and our guardian come and they learn skills together um, for the outdoors. It was, it's a, the brainchild of a, a young woman named Aaron, who he had also done a feature on, um, a while back and he just kind of fell in love with this project, Raise Them Outdoors. And so he thought that um, through his, uh, basically he has a 503C uh, um, nonprofit now of Blood Origins that he would help to raise money for these camps because COVID's hit everybody pretty hard. And as you can imagine, donations are hard to get and this kind of thing. But I think Aaron's still planning on putting those things on. There's five of them this year. And... Robbie kind of threw a challenge out to me saying, you know, he had seen what we had done in September with raising money for uh, fire relief through the Stealthy CBD. And he said, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we could fund one Raise Them Outdoors camp with the Hunt Harvest community donations? And I said, I think our community is so awesome and so generous that they would be willing to donate anywhere from 5 to $50 a person to help kids get into the outdoors more. Um, it's really valuable. You know, Ryan and I with the Western Hunting Summit, this is one of our loves really is mentorship and helping. And I mean, who better to mentor than children 
uh, and, and their parents, you know, there's a lot of kids out there who love the outdoors and want to learn these things, but their parents don't know what to do. They, they don't know how to shoot a bow. They don't know these things. So, um, the camp allows a parent to come and learn these things as well. So when the kiddo goes home, they can do it together. And that's so cool. It's only $5,000 to put on one camp. So if you got it in your heart and Again, if you're not too fatigued from people asking you to help this year or to pay money, I mean, if you don't have the money, we completely understand. If you do, if you have $5 and you decide tomorrow maybe you don't want to go to Starbucks and pay for that coffee, um, you know what? Maybe go to bloodorigins.com and donate to the Raise Them Outdoors project, and maybe we can fund a camp for kids and their parents to go learn skills in the outdoors, which I think if 2020 is teaching us anything... We need to teach this stuff and kids need to learn this and we need to be outdoors more away from our iPads, away from our computers, especially now that um, a lot of kids aren't going to school (laughs) when they're sitting in front of computers and television. So um, anyways, that was kind of a challenge you put out to our community. So I'm throwing it out there to you guys and feel free to to take on that challenge. Um, but yeah, Robbie's a great guy, and I love to promote what he's doing, and I love the conversations that he's having and bringing in people from all sides. We hope you enjoy this podcast. If you want to go ahead and, you know, take a little time, a little donation time, and maybe put a review on iTunes or, you know, even send us a hey, a DM, or a message through Instagram, we'd love to hear from you. But um, we appreciate you being here and listening and keeping up with us Um In these difficult times, we hope that you're all faring well. Elections are coming. It's stressful. Um, We just want everybody out there to uh, remember this too shall pass. And uh, yep, we all have big decisions to make right now. All right. Enjoy this podcast. Since we lost, were together and lost spoke, uh, Blood Origins now is a 501c3. Um, The reason we changed to become a nonprofit was very simple is that we needed to reach people that were a little philanthropic. Uh, It's the best way I could put it. That liked what we do, can see the mission behind it, and wanted to get behind the mission. Um, We purposely have decided to be essentially very, (laughs) we're very unique in the hunting industry in many, many, many uh, facets. But one of the facets that we decided to to take, it's not fast, it's one of the directions we decided to take right from the get-go is that we didn't want to belong to anyone. Mm-hmm. We didn't want to belong to any company. Like we couldn't belong to a gun company. We couldn't belong to a camel company. We couldn't belong to a bullet company because then that, that's just not who we are. Mm-hmm. We represent hunting. We represent hunters. And we have to represent all the camo companies and all the gun companies and all the bow companies. And so that hurt us. It didn't, well, it didn't hurt mm-hmm. us. It hurt yeah. my savings account because yeah. we weren't looking, I wasn't chasing people for money. Um, and so we had to figure out like, what does that look like? And the, the 501c3 route was e- the easiest route to go to do the work that we do, to continue the work that we do and to expand the platform that we have. And you've seen that happen. And so we had to think long and hard about what does that mean? How do we expand the platform? How do we do what we do 
continue to do what we do, but then take it one level up. Oh. And, um, and we got inspired by, we were fortunate enough to be involved in QU's direct conservation project in January of this year, where they decided to just go ahead and fund a project directly and storytell the project. And that was moving mm. sheep out of Montana into Utah, into North Dakota. And I spoke with Brendan and I said, Brendan, I love the model. Do you mind if I essentially plagiarize it? Um, in that as a 501c3, I think one of the things that what happens is a lot of people don't know where their money goes. And so we decided right. that we just wanted to, we'll just fund direct projects and here's your project and here's how much money we need for it. And we're going to add on an operational block of money onto that project because, you know, we have to run a website. We have to keep pushing the big stories that we do, the episodes like your content. Um, mm -hmm. But we also want to implement this project and we want to story tell the heck out of it because unfortunately as hunters and hunting, the hunting industry, we are not very good storytellers, though we should be the best storytellers in the world. I agree. I, I completely agree. I, I, I'm always making posts about it because at least in our household and, and my husband can just every, I could just point at one and be like, tell me the story. And he could have killed it 20 years ago, and he remembers exact details. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm always, like, harping that, that there's really nobody else that can have those memories. And that, not only that, you're, like, eating the meat, you're sharing the story, and um, we need to get better at telling the stories. And because, honestly, people that don't hunt, they're just enthralled by it, really. They're like wow, once you tell the story, I feel like it brings a lot more people over to our side, quote-unquote. Yeah, and, and, and I can guarantee you when Ryan is storytelling about that animal and in the moment of the hunt, the kill was almost the anticlimax because the, the kill means the hunt was over. Right, oh, he and, always uh, that, yeah. And Ryan's one of those that probably, you know, and we all know that, that he's looking for a buck the specific buck and he will hunt it for 14, 15, 16 days. Mm -hmm. And that's a story until itself, mm -hmm. you know? I feel like it's an important piece of the whole picture. And if you get one snippet, like an animal got killed, that's the snippet the media gives people, right? Um, some horrible person killed an animal. So whereas you say the kill is actually, I mean, it's a big deal. I'm not saying the kill is not a big deal, but it's a piece. It's a, it's a very small piece of the whole story, but the media grabs onto like an animal got killed and that's it. And then it just runs with this. Yeah. Um, I think that you're right. It's, it's let, let's be honest here. Um, hunting is hunting because we kill. Right. Um, but it is the finality of the game, not it's the finality of the lifestyle. It's the finality of what we do. Mm -hmm. um, it is a very minor component. It is a very anticlimactic component. It's a very emotional component. Um, it's one that we will forever be labeled as killers because yes, that is what we're doing. Um, and uh, without any context, without any narrative around that act, that's all it will be. 
Mm-hmm. And so that's, um, that's, you know, what we've pushed for. That's what a lot of people in the industry are now changing is there's nothing wrong with the grip and grin, but there's something wrong with not providing information around how you got to that grip and grin and what it looks like post grip and grin. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the whole story. It's the whole narrative. It's the, it's the work before it's the work after it's this bigger picture around who we are as hunters that we've strived to push. I, I can see the tide changing. Um, and people are recognizing that even inside the hunting industry. And then when somebody, you know, as a non-hunter, what we find is when you do that and you explain it, you get a lot of, oh, I never knew. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I've learned so much. I, I don't hunt, but I've learned so much. And um, just this, so my older daughter is 11 and she got her, she did her hunter safety. So in Montana, she can hunt with a, a, a guardian or a mentor or whatever. Um, so she did her hunter safety and then she got her first gun. She got, Ryan got her like a Weatherby gun, like a nicer, well, I don't have a gun. But she's got a nice gun. And um, they're going to go mule deer hunting um, in November here in Montana. I kind of sat on it for a few days when I heard that they were going to do it. And and I have never actually been hunting with my husband. So I've never Mm -hmm. witnessed him actually kill an animal. I think that I would like to be there if she gets a deer. I would like to be there for her. And I would like to be part of that experience because... I've missed out on all those experiences with my husband. Um, And for her to do that for the first time, whatever her response is, whether it's like, this is the one and only time I'm going to do it, or she loves it, or like whatever. It's like, I don't want to miss out on that. And so I told Ryan, I said, I think I'd like to go. And I'd like to be part of it. What did he he say? He was like, hell yeah let's do this, you know? So I have come to a huge transition going from being a non-hunter, not really wanting to understand it and having the stories all around me and still not wanting to understand it because I had biases. And sure, of course. So I've grown into it, but I'm at the point now where, you know, I want to be there in that moment when that happens, because I feel like the experience is going to be something really powerful for her. And as a parent, you know, you don't want to miss out on those experiences. So for me to be open, more open-minded um, will enrich, you know, that relationship. So, um, Oh, no doubt. No, yeah. I would just say selfishly, because um, there's no doubt. There's no doubt she's going to have an opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> I have no yeah, doubt. For sure. um, and if it happens, you know, let it, let it be what it is in the moment. Um, and that night, maybe take a step aside. And if you can do it by candlelight or by firelight or whatnot, turn your phone, selfie yourself and talk through like that perspective. Because to me, that would be important to us. I would love to see that because to me, that would be almost the next step from what we filmed you talking about. Mm-hmm. And you now in the moment seeing something being killed for the first time and it wasn't obviously still wasn't you, but it was your daughter now, which is different than your husband, I would think, 
killing it yeah. because now there's the innocence innocence of childhood wrapped in this idea of taking life um no it's gonna be i think it's gonna be awesome um but i think you're doing it right i know you've got other projects going on right now um you recently it looks like you just you did a couple overseas projects uh in africa because you are obviously from south africa so that's you know, I think those places hold a special place in your heart. And, yeah. um, and, and then in New Zealand, you worked on the TAR project, helping to raise money for that. What happened? Did they end up calling them? Like, I oh, yeah. haven't paid oh, yeah. attention to it. They did. No doubt. Yep. So oh. Department of Conservation has gone forward with the cull as planned in the operational plan for 2020, 2021. Uh, New Zealand has an election here in October, it's supposed to be in September, but they pushed it due to COVID. Um, but the Minister of the Environment there, um, it's funny, there's a film of the Minister 20 years ago saying in an interview, because she used to work for this green organization, Forest and Bird, that the goal is total eradication. And the guy, the interviewee goes, she goes, total elimination. He goes, you mean eradication? She goes, yes. That was a video 20 years ago. And she's now the minister and fulfilling what she said. And so the helicopter hours have not been reduced. Where they were going to cull to a density of zero has not, has not changed. So that's the national park. They're taking all the tar out of the national parks. They have come to the table a little bit in the last month or so in terms of uh, coordinating um, where they should be shooting, that kind of stuff. So if there's been any concession, that has been it, that they've actually listened a little bit towards the end, but maybe it's a little too little too late. Uh, they put out a map to show where they'd seen bull tar that they didn't shoot. Again, their concession to the hunters. Um, but really... Uh, I think it's not a stretch to say this year prior to the cull going into 21 and the next two, two to five years would have been the heyday of tar hunting in New Zealand because the population was strong, lots of animals. Sure, in certain places they were overpopulated and they needed controlling and they needed culling. But with the population uh, that they reduction that they just went through, it's probably set back tar 10 15 years in terms of its population so they're still there hmm. they'll they'll never be eradicated it's just like feral pigs in america but the population has been set back such that the people who remember hunting tar in the 90s where you barely saw a bull or you barely saw kids is probably going to be in effect for the next five years before until the population builds up again and obviously with the election and the change in government potentially in that spot, the removal of the greenies, hopefully, then um, there'll be a better management plan put forward. They don't have the science. They don't have the monitoring in place. They, that's the key part that everyone's saying, let's get that right, because they're, they're essentially relying on a plan that was built in 1993 hmm. um, for TAR. So that was one of our projects we got on. We got... Um, ahead of the game very quickly because we've got a lot of friends in New Zealand um, 
And uh, we put an idea out there. So the, the projects that we talked about funding through the 501c3, they're direct conservation projects. And they could be either implementation-specific projects, i.e. we're going to do something, or they're documentary projects of showcasing people doing things, i.e. we don't have to fund somebody doing it because they're already doing it. Let's, let's fund the storytelling behind what they do. So and so that's what, what we funded in New Zealand. What is the, uh, I mean, is the popular, is the popular thought there that these animals should be eradicated? Is that, is that the popular thought? Um, that's a very good question. And it, it almost comes down to a global societal, um, it comes down to, I would think that the global society right now is broken, regardless if you're in America, New Zealand, the UK, it's broken urban and rural. Mm. The urban yeah. society has a different idea of that animal. So in New Zealand, the urban, I would say the majority of the urbanites, they know that, there's, that there shouldn't be a mammal in New Zealand. They have a lot of mammals in New Zealand one of which is tar, and I wouldn't think that the majority think that they need to be eliminated, or actually a better word is eradicated. Um, that's just a very extreme viewpoint hmm. in which you are, you know, I'll, I'll say this, the viewpoint of the minister in New Zealand right now is not only no tar or deer or any mammals in the backcountry, so but they want even really, like stag and all that stuff gone? Dog. All of it. I will even say this, I, and I said it purposely, mammals. All mammals, including us. Mm. No humans in the backcountry. Let it be. Let nature be. And we all know that that is impossible because humans have influence on every part of this planet. And so... We, as a steward of the environment, as a steward of the planet, need to manage. And that's what hunters do. Hunters manage. And hunting is a tool for management, just like the tar population there. The tar population's been around for 100 years. It hasn't exploded to a million animals. It's been sustained at this population for quite some time. So then the popular government there is saying we need to eradicate these animals because they're destroying, they're destroying the habitat that we have here, but yet there's no mammals here. So what lives in their habitat? Like the birds and stuff? Like are we talking about they're trying to create a habitat that's just for native species? And are they protecting native species um, but eradicating everything that's not native? Because it seems to me, from what I understand, New Zealand – by far has way more non-native species than native species, correct? Am I, am I wrong there? Correct. The and only so native mammal in New Zealand would have been a bat. Uh, did ha had no predators. So New Zealand evolutionarily didn't have any predators and had no mammals. So that's um, why it was the bastion of flightless birds. That's why the kiwi is the national bird and the kia and the, the wiu and all those kind of things. And okay. with the advent of colonialism and people bringing pigs and goats and stoats and weasels and possums and wallabies and 
Now you've got ground predators. So they've got, you know, one of the major management actions that hunters undertake voluntarily across the entire New Zealand landscape is predator trapping, pest predator trapping, so that the ground birds have a chance. Hmm. Weasels and stoats and, um, you know, there's New Zealand's just, it's a, it's a morassed, complicated management system because then you throw in this uh, this thing called 1080 which is a poison that they've distributed out of helicopters for decades um that you would think that you know <laughs> you would think that hunters would be again uh, they're 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 against m you know 1080 just as much as non-hunters are against 1080 right um so okay so they eradicate the mammals and so the urban the urban thought is that this is going to take it back to how it used to be is, is the, I guess, is the tar a big piece of rural living in New Zealand? Yeah, I think, I think the outdoor lifestyle and hunting and gathering is a big part of rural lifestyle in New Zealand. I think the urban opinion, um, I would think that they understand the economics and the value that those animals bring, you know, from hotels and restaurants to foreigners coming to the country to hunt. Um, It's a very, you know, what we are dancing around here is what is the, why is there such, why is there a difference of opinion? Why is there, why do the urbanites not know about Tom? Mm-hmm. Why do the hunters and the rural people know about tar? And it's very poignant that you're saying that because that was what we decided to do to do the documentary on. Is that we decided to, as a first project out of the gate as a 501c3, is to do a, a documentary. And the entire documentary was filmed in August and we're releasing it next week. The documentary was way as you would expect with blood origins way outside the box Mm. so we decided to find four non-hunters we found a vegetarian we found a wedding photographer we found a another wedding photographer and then we found a university student that had just graduated uh in like a phys ed degree physical Mm. education degree and what we did was we took them we essentially flew them into the backcountry and we took them on a hunt. Wow. And we took them on a hunt without a rifle. And we got them up close and personal to something that they'd never out. seen before. What, yeah, the consensus what was, was the consensus? we had no idea. Hmm. We had no idea that they, what they looked like. We had no idea they were, they were so beautiful. We had no idea that they just felt like they belonged in the landscape. Um, it didn't feel like the landscape was denuded. And what was beautiful about that statement was the guy that, so here's the trick. The guy that was guiding them is this, the head of the New Zealand Tar Foundation. Mm-hmm. And um, he said, no, there's places that we do need a cult. There are places that we do need to manage, but they feed off grass. The, the snow tussocks is what they feed off and the grass grows. That's why you cut your grass. You cut grass, it grows more. A grazing animal eating snow tussocks, even though a snow tussock evolutionarily did not have mammals, you know, grazing on it 200 years ago, 300 years ago, 
It does now, but it's a grass and mm. evolutionarily a grass will regrow. Yeah. So it's uh it's it's an amazing piece of documentary. It's way outside the box. It's heartfelt, just like we normally do. Um and you've got four people's opinions about what they experienced and they're like, Whoa, this is this is mm. not what we expected. You see, I guess it's it's all perspective, really, and unfortunately, so many people don't have the perspective because they just haven't ever had the chance. You know, it's it's a, uh, and it, I feel like I mean, this year has been a great example of the division that certain ideally ideations can create. Like, this is how we are, and we think this is right, and this is how we are, and we think this is right. And truth be told is that if you were to be put in a situation that these other people were in, you know, you, you, you may not understand it until you're in it, you know? And so it's, and it's very divisive when we live in this thought pattern that um, one, either I'm right and they're always wrong, or I think we just live in a lot of ignorance and like, we just don't know. I unfortunately think that's the division of politics in general is to create that, you know, they, they need to keep people thinking that it's either this way or no way, right? My way or no way. And the other guys are bad. The other guys don't know what they're talking about. Right. And, right. Um, and even coming down to an issue like this, where are we going to eradicate an entire Island or islands of animals based on the popular thought that they shouldn't be here in the first place without really understanding what that means for entire populations of humans and those animals, um, it definitely puts perspective in for people. And that's why we took the route that we took, right? Yeah. And that's what you would expect. That's why I think Blood Origin stands out, is that we're not way over on this side, you know, hammering our chest saying this is who we are. It's like, let's just come to the middle. Let's just show them who we are. Let's, we don't need to... We don't need this rhetoric. We need to be in the middle. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, Log on, and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. I think no greater place that we've seen is in the projects that you've put forward in places like Africa, where communities absolutely depend on the hunter's dollar to put children in school, to feed them, um, to keep towns and communities alive. So... Can you talk a little bit about that? Because we forget, you know, when we live in a bubble again in our sound chamber, we forget that there's a large human community out there that um, has relied on Americans and Europeans and people to go in to do these things so that their communities can survive. Yeah, and I'd be remiss not to say that it's not just Africa, right? Yeah, Africa is an easy target. Africa is very, to show it, is, is very... 
people can relate. Mm-hmm. You know, people have seen the, the 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 starving African child since they were four years old on the television, so it's something easy to relate to. But from a hunting perspective, and outfitters, and jobs, and wildlife management, and habitat management, it, it, it's pretty much pervasive around the world. In the backyards of Montana, in BC, in California, and Mississippi. Outfitters have not been able to hunt because people can't get to them. And that has hurt, obviously, economics and whatnot. In Africa, there's an added element of, you know, that there is no people coming, i.e. there's no money coming. And when no money comes, it means like that nobody's hunting, which means there's no protein hidden in the ground, which means there's no food going back into the communities which is what a lot of people don't understand is that nothing is wasted in Africa. Not one single scrap of meat is ever wasted. It all gets used. And unfortunately, there's not any going to the community. So communities that have relied on that hunting outfit to feed them essentially now are stuck. And so what's the out? If you and I are in that community, the out is I'm going to go get my own meat. So I'm going to go poach. I'm going to go mm-hmm. find the animals and I'm going to go snare them and, 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 and increase the snare lines. Well, it's a double-edged sword because the hunter dollars also pays for anti-poaching, which is people on the ground looking for snares and, 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 and really protecting the wildlife. And that money has dried up too. So there aren't as much anti-poaching efforts hitting the ground. Now, a lot of people will say, and I completely understand it, that they're like, well, those people are hungry. And I said, yeah, they're hungry. And so poaching becomes a gray area in, in a sense that if you are starving, I don't think anyone in this world is going to hold it against you that you went out and got your own meat. It's what we do here in America. Yeah. Right? Um, we're not as we're not as indiscriminate that a, like a snare line would be, but that if they're you if they're going out to get the meat for the family to survive, that's one thing. But typically, what poaching is is you know people or syndicates or communities from outside coming in and laying snare lines so that they can trap and kill wildlife to then sell the meat in the village. Because now, obviously, they can profit from it. Right. And that becomes, that's the illegal activity tied to poaching. It's not that you're stopping the community of the villagers from their right to hunt. I've gotten that a lot. People are like, well, don't they have a right to hunt? And I was like, well, technically, these guys aren't interested in hunting. That's not something they do. It's not something that they are. It's not like a recreational activity that they go out to do. They are going out hunting because they need to feed their family period whether you want to call that hunting um okay but it's not hunting in the in the sense that we see well it's kind of like market hunting like what we had here in the united states you know um in the last century like that's exactly outlawed it because people were killing they were decimating animal populations to sell the meat and to make money off of it or the, the, the pelts or, you know, whatever they were selling. Um, and so that's really where our conversation, our conversation, our conservation efforts came through because we, mm-hmm. that was happening in North America as well. So, yeah, I mean, that gets a little confusing if you think about it, cause you're like, you've got a American flying in there 
to hunt and they can hunt because they're paying money for it, but the locals can't hunt. Right. It becomes poaching. Do they have like hunting seasons where a local can go out and get an animal to provide for his family? No, you know, that's, again, that's a very slippery slope. There is no real technical hunting season in Africa. Um, they will open up. There's, I could be stand corrected like in, in Tanzania or something like that, but I'm pretty sure there is, you can hunt whenever you want. Uh, I think Tanzania is the only one that opens like formally July 1. Uh, Mozambique is another one in the law that they formally can only hunt starting like June 1 through Jan 1. But in South Africa, for instance, let's use South Africa as an example because that's easy. There is no public hunting season because there's typically no wildlife on public areas. Okay. Um, Um, If there were public areas, it's all gone. It's all been wiped out. Oh, so it's these are private. Taken. These are private land places. People come in and they hunt. The animals are on private land. So if someone goes out and kills that animal on private land, it's considered poaching. Correct in, in South Africa, there? but okay. if like you're in Mozambique, which is not private land, you're technically leasing it from the government. You've got a concession on that land, so you've got a concession on public land, um, and it's in your best interest to sustain the wildlife on that piece of property because that's generating you know monies and revenues for your business but it's also generating revenue for the government it's also generating revenues for the locals and the community so then it's almost this feedback effect and that the the community you want you want the community to be fully integrated in the hunting operation so that they can see the value in that hunting operation. And so that's where the, the crux comes that that community doesn't want to hunt. Mm. And, and that's difficult to understand because again, if they were forced to hunt, they, were, they are hunting because they need to feed themselves. Mm-hmm. So if you have an outfit that comes in that says, we're going to give you all jobs. So we're going to pay salaries that you didn't have before. So now you're earning an income. At the same time, that, and we're also going to give you the protein from all the animals that are hunted. We're also going to give you access to medical. We're also going to build a school. All of a sudden, what has happened? What has happened is that animal that without the hunting operation was just viewed as the way to survive the way to feed the family has now become the same feeding the family plus all of this other value. So now they're incentivized to say, well, geez, okay. I don't want, I don't need to go snare rather. Let's have 50 of them out there. Let's have a hundred zebra out there because that means more hunters are coming which means more revenue, which means more jobs, which means more protein, which means more medical, which means more amenities, more a borehole, so forth and so forth and so forth. Mm. And so that's the whole COVID situation, right? The COVID situation has broken that cycle. And so the two projects that we have in South Africa, uh, one is tied to that 
in East Africa, uh, Eastern Cape, sorry, in South Africa and the Eastern Cape with the Mormons and South Africa safaris. And uh, when is this podcast going out again? Not tomorrow, right? No. A couple of weeks. Probably. Well, I can tell you then very oh. uh, confidently that tomorrow morning we're announcing that that project is fully funded. Awesome. So we have two projects in Africa that are fully funded. And the people that have come out to fund that project are just, you know, we were, we were lacking, you know, a, a quite a substantial amount of money. And yeah. uh, we got a DM that said, whatever's remaining, I will pick up. You know, I am such a, like, if I ever, if I had money in my life, I would be like the queen philanthropic chick. Cause I go through GoFundMe. I go through Instagram. I see all your things. I'm like, Oh, he only needs like $15,000. Like I'm thinking <laughs> to myself, like that shouldn't be hard to get. Come on people. And then I see there's like five donations. And then you, every time I, like I contacted you to do this podcast. Cause I was like, well, maybe we can talk about, some of your projects and then you, you you or i saw your thing on instagram and then i was like did you get it funded and you were like yes and i'm like that's the cool thing is that there are people out there that have the money they have lots of money and they need to do something with it and they want to help people mm -hmm. and that would totally be me if my if my walk in life was to be some rich woman who just had money to to give to people to help them but that's well, really we exciting. are going to do something. We are going to do something because there's yes. one project left on the table. Yes, let's talk and about that. And that's very close to your heart. And so the last project that's to be funded for this first six-month segment is called Raise Them Outdoors. And Raise Them Outdoors is a, a, is a hunting, fishing camp for kids, but it's different because it forces a mentor and a parent to come with the child. Mm. and because of that, when that kid leaves the camp and the way that Aaron describes it, and Aaron was a past blood origins episode. The way mm. that Aaron describes it is that we all want to break from our kids. We all want to ship them off to camp and that's okay. But when the kid comes back from camp and says, I want to shoot my bow or I want to shoot a bow and you don't know what to do or what even where to start that kid that just learned all those lessons over the weekend essentially, you know, it essentially dies. And so that way, this way, that love of whatever they pick up over the weekend, whether it's shooting or bow hunting or fishing, carries on because the parent or the mentor is with them. Mm. And so this year, Aaron has obviously struggled to fundraise because of COVID and everybody, you know, market bu marketing budgets have shrunk. And so we just decided without Aaron knowing, <laughs> we decided to see if we could fund her entire 2021 um, oh, raise cool. an outdoor cycle. And so we want to raise about $32,000 that would pay for five camps, as well as the storytelling around families going to the camps and, and the stuff that we do best. Hmm. Um, so we've raised about 10 and a half thousand already. So we've funded already two camps. We've got three more camps to fund, and then we want to fund the storytelling. Is she taking Yeah, so the, 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 the beautiful thing about what Erin does is that obviously you, you don't have to apply. You have to apply. You have to register for camp. But if, somebody, if someone reaches out to her and says, I don't have a mentor or I don't have an uh, adult, I don't have a parent, they'll find one. Oh, cool. Like she'll find one. Or if they say, we don't have the funds, 
Like I can't afford the 150 bucks. I think that's what they cost or something like that for the weekend, something like that. She'll have the money. Mm. So she doesn't ever turn anyone away. Um, and that's why her camps fill up really, really quickly. Um, so I know one of the things you said to me when we reached out for this, you said, how can we, can we do something? Mm-hmm. Can we, can we, my audience, my community, you know, Ryan's community, whoever we can reach Cody's community, because Cody is on the board of Raise Them Outdoors. Yeah. And Cody's part of our Western hunting summits. So here's two ideas. Okay. One camp costs five grand. Okay. You want to fund and your community funds one camp. That would be awesome. Let's do it. One camp. Second okay. seed is there's probably someone listening to this podcast who is a filmmaker, cinematographer, someone who's young and hungry, and they want to say, man, we'd love to tell the story. We want to donate you know, $5,000 of our time to the project to tell someone's story. And mm-hmm. at the same time, you know, they get to build something that's meaningful and we push it out through our platforms using, and this is them, right? This is their, a little bit of exposure to them. Um, right. But I think that that would be a wonderful piece to add on to this is that there's, you know, there's, there's all sorts of new cinematographers on the landscape that are exceptional, mm-hmm. super talented. And I, uh, go I ahead. know a few. I think that, you know, we get, we get a lot of people listening to this. I think that we can, I think that we can put the challenge out there. Um, I know that, I mean, we just raised $5,000 for fire relief um, this month. And I mean, we sold products. So, you know, it wasn't like we just, people Mm -hmm. just gave us money. We gave them something Mm -hmm. in return. You know, they bought something. (laughs) But I was like, I was like you, I was thinking to myself, you know, we're watching our friends' houses burn down and we're, we're watching people lose their lives and end up with burns on their body and like horrible stories that are coming out. And I was just like, I feel like I should do something to help. And even no matter how small it is, you know, these things change people's lives. Just thinking that other people out there that you may not even know care about you. And, um, I think that, these platforms that we have giving information is so important and sharing information about what we love is so important, but we need to give back and we need to create what we're talking about here, you know, is, is the community of people who have the ability to help have the ability to do what we can do, you know, to raise money um, that we should do that. And that, that, improves i mean as a doctor i would say it improves your health more than anything is to know that you've helped people um and it's it's a healthy thing to do it's actually good for you um and i think that i know that you know that's what this is all about right the whole thing and i think sometimes people get i've noticed this um and you've probably noticed this too people have a little bit of like fatigue i think this year i think this year has been exceptionally hard so you've done amazing at launching a nonprofit, getting your (laughs) projects like like, (laughs) 
I, and you know what they're saying, you know, the, the smart people are always like start a business when the economy's crap, because that's when they do good. And, and I think what we're seeing is that, um, yes, a lot of us have lost our butt with COVID, right? Like a lot, a lot of people really lost their butt, lost their jobs, like got furloughed, Mm-hmm. bad people's houses have burned down and they're living in shelters right now. Like, like there's really bad things that can happen, but at the same time, I think we have to be careful not to get fatigued when it comes to what can we do to give back? Because you'll see all these things like donate and give money and here's a new project and here's this. And, you know, I can kind of tell when you're asking for money, it's like people start getting fatigued, like, Oh, they're going to ask for money again. And Oh, they're going to do this again. And the truth is if you go on GoFundMe, it's a perfect example. People can give five bucks a piece, five bucks. You'll go to Starbucks and trash your body for five bucks. Okay. You can raise hundreds of thousands of dollars. You donate five bucks. Yeah. You can turn that into $2 million. Like, bam. Yeah. Like so we have, um, Facebook so, actually has a supporter, pro- a supporter platform that we are involved with, which is two ninety nine dollars a month. Oh. That's it. two ninety nine dollars a month. $2.99. Not two ninety nine. $2.99. $2.99 a month. And, uh, you know, nobody's going to miss it. It's a freaking pack of chewing gum. I can literally find $2.99 right here on my desk. Yeah. So if, if people, if people, you know, like, I don't want to give 50 bucks, bucks, sign up $2.99. It's so simple. It's through PayPal. It's $2.99. And you know, the way we've, we've got, I think 18 people that have signed up for $2.99 a month. But 18 people becomes 100 per people. 100 people becomes 500. And all of a sudden, we are like, okay, now we can really push message. Now we can really, you know, go do things that are out, outside the box, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I've had somebody tell me, why don't you go, um, here's one of the things that somebody told me, why don't you go uh, rent some billboards? Explaining the heart of hunting or something like that. Could you imagine how many people you could touch? Oh, what the billboard. Yeah, I see what you're saying. What we need to do, we need to think outside the box. You know, the if we're gonna keep hunting around for my kids and my grandkids and your grandkids one day, the next ten years is the critical time. Well, here's the deal. Times are changing because if COVID hasn't taught us anything, it's like you may at some point need to know how to hunt, right? Yeah. You, you may need to understand that food doesn't grow in a grocery store. And I think having been to large urban areas where people do live in food deserts and they, they, they know nothing about these things. It's like, that's where we need this education because there are people that live in those areas that could be feeding their community, that could be helping their community, that could be changing it if they just had access to the information that wasn't a bunch of biased nonsense. And the media, the traditional media has done that. It's again, urban versus rural, right? But there right. is massive problems in the urban environments, massive related to food and related yep. to health. 
and related to COVID and related to these things. So I, I'm the same with you. It's like those people live where they live. A lot of them may not have the choice to leave. They've got family, they've got their culture, they've got all that there. But, but we, there's so many ways that our education could help people learn to be more self-sufficient and to, and to help their communities. And one great way to do that is through food. Mm-hmm. You know, it's through helping them know their food. They can't learn about this stuff and then teach them that those things are bad. That's a great way to keep people from being what they're truly meant to be, which is free. So, I mean, as a, as a country, we have so many freedoms that everybody could be part of if there's just the information about how it could improve your health and improve your community. You, you know, one of the things that you almost just described why I built Blood Origins is that I come from a place that we don't have these freedoms. And so as an American now, and a proud American, and raising two boys in this country, that I know the difference between what we have and what we could lose. And if you don't have that perspective, you don't understand it. You don't know that it's possible. You don't know that the slow erosion of X, Y, and Z results in no public ground, no opportunities, no opportunities to walk down a, a forest road with a, with a loaded weapon that's yours. I've been there. I've seen it. Not in this country, but where I'm from. Mm-hmm. And that's why I take this project so seriously. A lot of people say, Robbie, you're so serious. <laughs> why are you so serious, Robbie? I say, you'd be serious too if you knew what you could lose. So tell us how um, people can get a hold of you, how they can donate. What's, what's sure. the deal? Yeah, Blood Origins, everything. Blood Origins on Twitter, Blood Origins on Facebook, Blood Origins on Instagram. Uh, you can find the donation is super easy. We have a donate button on Facebook. We have a donate button on Instagram. We have a donate button on the website. Everywhere we can have a donate button, we have a donate button. Um, <laughs> We also have, obviously, the specific projects that you can give to. So on our website, we've, re- we've reconstituted our website to make it more project-driven. And so you can click on ind- individual projects, and you can see how much money has been raised on individual projects, and you can donate to individual projects, and that money goes directly to those projects. Okay. Um, and so that's it, man. Um, as I said, love to challenge you, know, you and your community to – raise enough to pay for one camp and if you did you know what you just did in the month of uh, september in the month of october that would be awesome um and any videographers out there that are you know keen to get their their um a little you know a little exposure and want to help us out and uh love what we do we'd love to help them out too and uh, introduce them to some people because uh, that's what we tend to do. We just we like introducing good talent to good talent and mm-hmm. let them their wings soar uh, through our platform. And obviously, we get great content from them. We get great storytelling from them. Um, and uh, as a whole, our whole community benefits because of that. Right. Cool. Okay. Well, we'll take the challenge. Um, 
excited to see your film coming out. So your tar film comes out. What's the name of the tar film? Uh, a Difficult Treasure. It comes okay. out on October the 9th. Okay. Next Friday. Uh, we'll have a bunch of teasers before and after. Um, and then we've got, obviously, that is followed by, we have an episode at the end of this month, Anna V from Georgia. We then have, obviously, Suzanne and then you. This Sunday's Talking Head is about, I don't know if you saw the big uh, state record Arizona elk that got killed um, by uh, an individual. Anyway, they put a video up of it, and it's had like 150,000 views, but it's had like 700 comments from hunters saying that the guy's not a hunter. Oh. And uh, it, it's because he's the governor's tag. He paid $300,000 oh. for the bull, and he shot it from a long way away. And it's, it's a very interesting... Long-range long range kill, yeah. Yeah, long-range kill. But it's still legal. It's still, he shot it in the heart at 960 yards. Um, it is a, it is a, it is a dialogue of legality as opposed to ethics. Mm. And my ethics and ethics are gray. And so it's essentially, it's, it's an identification of the cancer that's inside of our community right now, which is hunters hating on other hunters mm -hmm. just because they don't do what I do. Mm -hmm. They don't, well, you're not a hunter because you don't shoot a traditional bow. Mm -hmm. Well, who says he's overweight. Okay. Right. Does that make him any less of a hunter? Well, that's anyway. interesting. That's an interesting topic. Cause you know, we've talked about it too different types of hunting and what what's right what's wrong again those two words they have that gray area right and wrong can be mean very many different things to many different people right yep. um but i think the goal with all our platforms with hunting is to share the stories and to bring a good light to this community and the amazing people that are in it and that you know we um we don't want to lose this freedom. We don't want to lose freedom. And freedom is a word that's being thrown around a lot right now. So I think that it's, a, it's an important word to meditate on. Yep. For sure. Exactly. Okay, Thanks, well, we're going to run out of time again. So I'm going to let you go, Robbie, but um, we'll catch up. And uh, awesome I appreciate chatting. it. Appreciate it. Have a good night. Yeah, awesome Bye. chatting. Thank you so much. Okay. Talk Ciao, to you bye. soon. Bye.